This is Neon Radio, episode 156, with Srinivas Rao. Welcome to Neon Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, fashion and lifestyle photographer for today's top brands, performers, and game changers. On this podcast, we explore the body, mind, and soul of the creative entrepreneur, bringing you inspiring guests to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. What is up, my fellow creatives? Hope you're doing well out there. I want to introduce you to this week's guest. His name is Srinivas Rao, and he has a dope podcast called The Unmistakable Creative, which you can check out. I was on his podcast a while back, but he's had so many amazing people on there. It's a great podcast for creatives. Go check it out. What I'm really excited about is his newest book called The Audience of One that he just released. And it is all about creating for the audience have one yourself and creating the work that you want to create, that you want to be known for, that you want to be hired for. I actually read it twice and I found it really, really great book, especially for where I've been at this last year and a half and kind of taking the time for myself to learn these concepts. He is an author, a speaker. He hosts conferences as well. So if you're interested, you can check those out where there's a lot of other creatives like yourself out there and all around great guy. We had a great conversation some about creative hacks, creative production, creating for yourself, all kinds of different things, flow states, you name it. Great conversation. So don't forget to go over to the Neon Life site if you haven't signed up for the newsletter. You can sign up there. You can also take the quiz, neonlife.com slash quiz. That's N-I-O-N-L-I-F-E.com slash quiz. Fill it out. Quick 10-question survey, and we'll actually send you some free content to help you out with wherever you're at in your creative journey. You can also join the community over at neonlife.com slash community and join some other fellow creatives over there. So with that, I bring to you the one, the only, Mr. Srinivas Rao. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the podcast. We have Srinivas Rao today, which I'm excited about. He just launched a new book, The Audience of One, which was really great. I'm going through it for the second time right now. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you had me on your show a couple of years ago. And yeah. uh, it was great. The Unmistakable Creative. Check it out. He's got tons of great guests and amazing content around creativity. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I think now, like a year ago, it was something like 700 interviews. And so now it's got to be wow. well over that. We must probably be at about 800 now. And uh, How many yeah. years have you gone? 10 now. 10 uh, years. So as Unmistakable Creative, under that brand name, four, but we started as a podcast for bloggers back in 2009, no which way. a lot of people don't know. It's funny because you know our, our older body of work is so buried now that... Most people have only found us within the last few years. They don't even know about any of that stuff, Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is great because it wasn't that good, you know? <laughs> yeah. So when you say our, who, who are you? So I, I, <laughs> I, you know, so I mean, definitely like I'm, I'm at the center of all of this, right? Uh, yeah. and that's kind of one of the weird things about a brand like this, where you're the host of the show. Everybody knows you, but they don't really see that behind the scenes, there are a lot of people that help to make this happen. A combination of freelancers, artists, yeah. uh, I have a content strategist who I work closely with. He really, more than anything, works on, on you know polishing up writing for the sake of conversion. Like I can write. It, there's a big, big difference between being able to do the kind of writing that's required to write a book and yeah. writing to actually sell things and to write copy. Like it's two different skill sets entirely. Yeah. Uh, I can't write copy to save my life, but I can write. <laughs> I can write a 200-page book. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally different things. Now, your 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 origins is as a writer, correct? Yeah, well, funny, it's kind of a combination of both. Expertise, right? Well, so here's the funny (laughs) thing, right, is that the reason I started the the podcast was because I was in this online course called Blog Mastermind, and this was uh, 2009, and it was one of my, I'd started my first blog, and one of the, the lessons in the online course was to actually go out and interview people. And the 13th yeah. guy I interviewed actually, you know, I'd emailed him and, and I think after a few mon- months after our interview, and I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to start an, another blog, a multi-author blog. Do you want to contribute to it? And he said, no, I don't think it's a good idea. And I also don't think you're a very good writer. He didn't say it in those exact words, but he said, but I think you're a much better interviewer. Like, and to this day, I will say that I, I think I'm a much better interviewer than I am a writer. Like there's, there's literally probably two skills in my life where I have zero self-doubt, you know, and one of them is as an interviewer. 
I will never say that about my writing. <laughs> like, as a writer, I think that I have you know plenty of room to improve. I mean, I make atrocious grammar mistakes. I make spelling mistakes. I think you know you and I met through Amber Ray, yeah. and you, you look at people like Amber. You look at people like Sarah. I think that they are Sarah Pack. Uh, they're to me really gifted writers. Yeah. I think my ability to write has been purely through just persistence. So it's it's funny because in theory, yes, my origins are as a writer, but the whole reason I started a podcast was because the guy who was the co-founder of the podcast didn't think I was a good writer. So naturally, he was the first person who got a phone call when I got my book deal with Penguin. I was like, apparently Penguin doesn't agree with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, I mean, I've worked and worked and worked at it. I think I have to work a lot harder at writing than I do at interviewing. I think that writing doesn't come as naturally to me. Which is why my, you know, my, my approach to writing has been one of volume. You know, yeah. I just write every day and I always say, I'm not a great writer. I just write a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it takes practice. I mean, photography is kind of the same way. That's my like primary, like I'm good at it. Yeah. And there's all these other things that I enjoy, but other different mediums, but it's not, I have to work at it harder. Yeah. So I totally get that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, you know, it's a thousand words every day and, and people, I was like, listen, if you're writing a thousand words a day that, you know, comes out to about 300,000 words a year. And some days I, I hit far more than that. And if you're writing that much, only a small percentage of it needs to be good. And inevitably, if you do something a lot, it will be good. And this has you know, been proven by research. So Adam Grant wrote this book, Originals, which you may have read or heard about. But one of the things he found in his research is that the common thread between people who are wildly successful as creatives was many of them had work that wasn't remarkable, but they all had a large volume, a lot like a large you know, volume of work. You know, you look at Bob Dylan, like how many albums did Bob Dylan record? It's ungodly yeah. amounts, but you only know of a handful of songs. You know, right. Seth Godin has written 19 books, most of which are bestsellers. But if you go to Amazon and you do a search, you'll see that Seth Godin wrote a book called Email Addresses of Famous People. Yeah. yeah it's funny because we don't see most of this stuff because it's so buried by somebody's success that you don't see all the bad things they've done. Or, yeah. or you go to look at George Clooney, right, who has this prolific body of work as an artist and an actor. But then people forget, uh, I'm 40 years old, about to be 41, that George Clooney was on The Facts of Life. Right, <laughs> right, know, like, right. I didn't even know that. But <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Mean, it's it's funny because you don't see this. Or what's her name? The the woman from Friends, not Jennifer Aniston, but the other one. Uh, oh, Courtney Cox, Courtney I think. Cox. Yeah, yeah. She was, I think, in Family Ties. Like she had a cameo in Family Ties. And we don't see any of these things yeah. because they're so buried by somebody's stardom that you forget that, wait a minute, like this person has created a large volume of work, yeah. probably as an actor, been on thousands of auditions, potentially appeared in hundreds of films that you never see yeah. until suddenly they have this one moment in the spotlight that catapults them. And what people don't see is that everything they had done up until that point was practice and yeah. preparation. And so that's why I think volume is one of the fastest ways to accelerate your progress as a creative. Yeah, because the more you make, the more you learn. And the more you yeah. learn, the better you get. But you also have this whole like, trial and error this this Absolutely. whole like oh i made this this didn't work i got to do this better well and then it, you also get into the point where it, it becomes routine where you don't have to think about it anymore right I, I think for me i wanted to get this all to a point where i realized i could make this behavior automatic and once i realized that it was kind of the most powerful thing ever and yeah. that's where I think a lot of creatives get caught up is that they tend to be outcome focused as opposed to process oriented right. and so you know if you look at all the research around growth mindsets a growth mindset requires you to be process oriented. A fixed mindset is outcome orientation, which is basically, oh, if this book doesn't become a New York Times bestseller, I'm a shitty writer. It's like, not really. I mean, you wrote a book. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Know? Well, and it's interesting. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, how social media has kind of created that outcome mindset versus, oh, I got to get likes, got to get this stuff. Yeah. Versus the actual like, oh, I'm just making art. I'm making things for myself. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I wrote a piece about this recently. I think it was titled why social media metrics are actually detrimental to our creativity. And specifically for that reason, because people are in pursuit of vanity metrics that are completely meaningless as opposed to looking at their progress uh, yeah. as a creative person. I think that the metrics on social media platforms actually have diminished creativity, which is ironic because we have tools that enable us to be more creative than we've ever been. And you know, I kind of said that something along these lines in the book itself that you know, paradoxically, the very tools that have facilitated so much creativity have also inhibited it at the same time. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. I mean, because kind of the stuff you were showing me earlier was like all this stuff is being automated. AI is completely automating a lot of, I guess it's probably more production oriented types yeah. of, of work, but it's still automating some of the creativity. I mean, the fact that you can 
design a logo through AI in five minutes. It, it blows my mind. Yeah. Like, well, and it's decent. Right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's not a, bad. It yeah. doesn't look like crap. You know, you're kind of like, wait a minute. Like if I needed a logo for a brand and I didn't want to hire a designer, like this will cost me 30 bucks versus, you know, $500 or $5,000 for some iconic designer. And what's scary is that if the machine is that good now, imagine what's going to happen when that same machine has 7 million people who've designed logos using it. It's yeah. going to be a thousand times more accurate and a thousand times more powerful. Right. So you know, you're going to get the kinds of stuff that leads to like, you know, the equivalent of what you might get if you were to go out and hire Chiat Day to do your creative. Right. Exactly. Which, here's the thing. I think that's cool about that is that it puts power in the hands of individuals like we've never had it before. Yeah. And, you know, as I was telling you, you, you know, you're talking about production tasks and it does automate a lot of production tasks, but production tasks are often the things that require technical proficiency, whereas the thing that you want. And so often, even when you're working with creatives or, or people to produce stuff, you yeah. have to be the one to be able to imagine all this stuff, right? Even, you know, when I, I go to people and, and say, hey, I want to do this, this is what I'm imagining. I have to be able to communicate what it is that I'm imagining. Right. Now I'm in this position where I don't have to tell somebody what I'm imagining. I can be like, okay, this is what I'm imagining. This is what it would take to do it. And I can just put the pieces together. And, you know, what I'm imagining it can become reality very quickly. We have the ability to go from idea to execution faster than any other time in history. But the thing that I think comes with that is the people have this idea in their head that they're going to be successful just as quickly too. Right, right. Where do you think that's headed? Where, where's the future of, of the creative headed? Because, you know, it's like in your book, you talked about how so many things are being automated and like creativity is going to keep is the like the linchpin, right? Like yeah. as creatives, that's the one thing you can't really replace no, down no, the you, road. You, However, you we are starting to replace a, like lower levels of that, I would totally. say. You know, you're not going to have like these huge corporations designing their logo on on, a, yeah. on an app necessarily. You might. I mean, maybe. I mean, that's the scary thing, right? You maybe. might. Maybe. So, well, and the thing is, I mean, I think that, you know, like I said, you, you what used to only be in the hands of huge corporations and only affordable for them is, is quickly moving to being in the hands of us. You know, you look at Adobe's Creative Cloud, like everything they've done recently by embedding their AI into it is really speeding up the ability to, for people to do things. They basically said, you know, for our tools, we want anybody who can imagine something to be able to create it, mm. whether that's animation, whether that's photography related stuff. So the tools are going to get easier and easier to use. So yeah, I mean, maybe now you're not going to see a large corporation do that, but in a, you know, two years, three years, if the large corporation can have, you know, a machine design a logo for $10 or a graphic designer come in and spend $5,000 on that designer, What's going to happen is, you know, technical proficiency will be more and more commoditized. And then that's where you kind of, as a creative, have to look at, okay, what parts of my skill set are honestly commodities? Because as I was saying, I think that so much of what we do as creatives, particularly when it comes to design, and I'm not a designer, but I started to just see this pattern. You're making decisions that are all just data points, right? Like you're choosing fonts, you're choosing colors, you're choosing sizes. That's all data. And if it's all data, that means a machine can do it. That's where you know people don't get what you know artificial intelligence is capable of. It's it's not going to to replace humans, and it's not magic. It's not like you, you can do all these things. But I mean, you saw some of what I showed you, and yeah. most of that is pretty mind boggling that that's actually already possible. And keep in mind, we're in like the earliest iterations of yeah. these tools, and so if these are all data decisions, right? As each machine tool gets more and more data put into it. As more and more people use Photoshop, basically, they'll be able to recreate things on the fly like that yeah. that they couldn't before because then, you know, Photoshop's machine learning tools in the cloud are going to have millions and millions of data points to pull from. Yeah. And that is going to be, I think we're headed to one of the most like prolific periods in history for people who want to be creative. Like there's never been a better time. Man, when I was in college, it used to take thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours just to do something as simple as build a website. Oh, yeah. Um, so I don't know how, how old you are, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm 40. Okay, yeah. so then, then you know. like Yeah, uh, I mean, my first my first big website, photography website, I paid $25,000 for. And I've, now I'm using a program or like an app that's like $34 yeah. a month for the pretty much the same it's, features. So, you know, Seth Godin was talking about this recently on a podcast where he said, you know, with Moore's Law, right? Every The idea is that computing power will keep doubling. So for what you pay for an iPhone, what an iPhone is capable of now, 
used to have like a giant, you know, crate size box on the, on your desk. Yeah. And everything is getting faster and, and cheaper. And it's only going to keep going that way to the point where it's like, if this goes at this rate, eventually an iPhone, which cost $800, you know, 10, 20 years from now could cost $10 right. to, to manufacture and to, and to do all the things that it does now, which is nuts to think about, you know, well, think about it. Like you and I are recording this, the things that we're doing now once only we're in the power of like the big radio stations or the, the big broadcast networks. Yeah. And suddenly you have what's happening is basically the power distribution uh, for media creators is changing. Yeah. But the flip side of that is of course that the big media outlets have large audiences already. So now that they're recognizing all of this, you know, it's not a coincidence that the entire damn media landscape is hopped on the podcast bandwagon. Right. They saw it and they're like, oh, wait a minute, we're missing out on something here. And, you know, they're now finally catching on to it. And so you're seeing this happen, you know, from the mainstream too. But I, I think it's, you know, only a matter of time before that playing field becomes completely level. And the other thing is they don't have a relationship with their audience the way that an individual creator does. Yeah. And so as far as where this is going to move us as creatives, I think that, you know, technical proficiency will be a commodity and imagination and creativity will be sort of, right. you know, when you look at a tool, it's no longer going to be, how do I use this thing? It's going to be, what can I imagine as possible with this thing? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's such a huge, I mean, it's a perspective shift. It's 100%. a paradigm shift, right? So yeah. this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to be talking to a group of students tomorrow. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm talking to people about innovation, and I think creativity is a precursor to innovation, but every sort of, you know, decade or so, we have a major technological paradigm shift that fundamentally changes what is possible with our lives and, and our work. And I got to give credit where credit is due for this. You know, Julian Smith, who had one of the most popular blogs on the internet, went on to, to be the founder of a startup called Breather, which is like Airbnb for office space. When he was on Unmistakable Creative, he said, you know, every time a technology comes along, you have to ask yourself, what does this make possible that wasn't before? So right. if you look at this from the perspective of, okay, let's say, you know, the early 90s, right? Mark Andreessen creates Netscape. We get the first commercial web browser. The porn industry figures out how to charge somebody's credit card. You get the combination of a commercial web browser and the ability to charge somebody's credit card, and that results in e-commerce, which you get eBay, Amazon, and all the other things that have made right. you know we take for granted today. Fast forward to 2008, Apple basically comes out with the iPhone, and you get the iPhone combined with location tracking, which all of a sudden makes billions of dollars in companies that weren't possible before possible, Lyft, Airbnb, Uber. All this stuff, yeah. DoorDash, things that are just staples in our lives today. Right. And then, you know, from there you get to, you know, Amazon Web Services, which makes, you know, GitHub, Squarespace, WordPress. And now you're building apps over the course of a weekend. So if you look at the first online photo sharing site was called Ophoto, one of the very first sort of iterations of it. It took $60 million in funding to build Ophoto. Now you could do that over the course of a weekend sitting at your laptop. Uh yeah. yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. And so that was the a paradigm shift that made sort of the this latest like iteration of Web 2.0 possible. Now what you're having is probably the biggest one we've seen yet, which is AI and automation combined with all that other stuff, which we're going to see. I think it was Kevin Kelly who said that in the next 10 years, we'll see more progress than we have seen in the previous 50. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's kind of like there's this. It's, uh, have you ever, you've already read Wait, But Why? Yeah, yeah. Like Tim Urban has this article called The Fermi Paradox uh -huh. on there. And he talks about like the hockey stick slope of technology, technology and intelligence uh -huh. enhancement or growth. And how, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. It was like super slow. And now it's just like shooting up high. Right. And I mean, he goes into the whole idea of like other human like planets out there that could ha that have been around for, say, like yeah. a million years longer than we have. Like think of where their technology is. On their on their slope, right? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it kind of you know it goes back here too, where it's like you're talking about like the phone, like an iPhone now is you know the, the process is the same as like a computer the size of a room twenty well, years. So ago. I think Peter Damanis in his TED talk he said that a Maasai warrior in a village in Africa has more computing power in their mobile phone than Bill Clinton did while he was in office. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, wait a minute, really? The leader of the free world had less power, computing power at his disposal than somebody in a village in Africa does today. That's insane. Yeah. And and to think that, you know, and that happened in 10 years. So imagine, you know, what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Totally. So, you know, what's interesting is we're talking about paradigm shifts here. Uh, and I mean, photography is definitely seen two, like probably two now coming on three. The first one was film to digital, which uh -huh. I was kind of like the first part. I started in that world. I started yeah. in digital, but right when it first started coming out, then it became digital into social media, right? Where yeah. like and the distribution 
of content shifted everything. So that's shifting the industry as well. And so what I'm curious about is after reading your book, you, know, you talk about the audience of one and get really getting back to the creative, like it's, and it's almost like you, you have to keep getting back to creating for yourself to really yeah. make it through and keep innovating to make through these paradigm shifts. Yeah. Well, so the thing that I, I think, you know, I had mentioned this even with Chase Jarvis when I, I talked to him about yeah. this and I said, you know, I think that one of the unfortunate byproducts of social media and something that I think has been a great disservice to our culture is the artificial sense of celebrity that's come about from it. Right. Right. Because now I mean, you've had, you know, people like Usher on your podcast and, and you know, people like Usher predated this whole era where you could just be famous, even if you were nobody like to be to become Usher, you had to work your ass off. Like right, that exactly. takes work, you know, whereas now you could not do that. And in a year, have a million followers on Instagram, have no real skills, but suddenly, <laughs> you know, be in the world as an influencer or a celebrity. Like, you know, after this college admissions scandal, there was a what's her name? Lori Laughlin's daughter, who apparently is like a YouTube influencer or something like yeah. that. But the thing is, there's no real talent there. It's not like she acted in movies or developed her skill as, as an actor or anything. She just basically accumulated followers and shares you know, her thoughts on YouTube. And so somehow we've kind of lost, uh, I think, touch with the idea of craft in, in all of yeah, this. Oh, and so, you know, in a lot of ways, I say that we, we've prioritized mastery over or metrics over mastery. And so people are particularly young people are really just you know vulnerable to this idea of, oh, my value in the world is determined by these these metrics. And if you look at people who have sustained themselves as creatives, even if you go through Hollywood, right, you, like, you know, we mentioned Usher, but if you look at actors, musicians, whoever, who've had really long term sustainable careers. That's not how they got there. Uh, you know, Cal Newport has been writing a lot about this. Uh, he's been mentioning people who don't have any social presence whatsoever. For some reason, lately, the, the people I know this because he's a baseball fan, so it's always right. baseball players that he writes about. But he wrote a piece just a few like last week about some baseball player. He said this guy made four hundred and thirty million dollars, and he doesn't have any social media presence whatsoever. And he's a professional athlete, and that kind of makes you think. You're like, wait a minute, like. Yeah. So the upside to not doing this and focusing on the work itself is a four hundred and thirty million dollar contract. Right. And even you know they they've studied the the performance of NBA athletes who tweet the night before the game, and it turns out they they actually score less points in a game. Right. Yeah. Probably because they're focused on like the external. Yeah. Uh, and output. and the thing is, you know, the, particularly this generation of athletes, right? They've all grown up with this stuff sort of native to their lives. Whereas, you know, if you look at Charles Barkley was on, on the Dr. Phil's podcast and he said, oh, yeah, I don't use any of this stuff either. And when you look at somebody who makes a $430 million contract or you, know, you look at a baseball player at the top of his game who has literally no social presence and has chosen not to live this way, it kind of makes you think, OK, well, you know what? Maybe there is something to this. Like, why are we doing this? And uh, I think that if most people had a very honest assessment about the value that social media adds to their life, like, does it make you happier? Most people would probably find no. Does it make you more money? Most people would find probably no. Right. Uh, I know I quit for 30 days and I remember coming back after 30 days and, you know, I was looking and I was just like, wow, this is kind of insane. Like we've, this is what I, I think I said that we ba basically what we've done is we've sacrificed the time in our lives with the people who matter most to us to become spectators in the lives of people we've never even fucking met. Yeah. That's insane. It really is. You know, I mean, the level of insanity that this has caused is and I, my concern in particular is for younger kids. Like I've seen, you know, after doing all the research I've done in this book and even talking to people that I have, that the impact that this has on sort of a developing brain, you know, if you're constantly in search of validation, like what is that doing to your sense of self-worth? I mean, we're all fucked up enough as it is. Right. Like, you know, any kid who goes through childhood has to go through enough therapy to fix all the damage their parents have done. Uh, you know. So true. And so then you layer this on top of that. And it, to me, I, I think the biggest thing that we really have to, to get back in touch with is really this idea of craft and mastery yeah. over, over metrics. And I, I think that, you know, if you look at the evidence, it kind of bears it out. Like you look, the people who are the most successful it's not a go look at the, the social media presence of some of your favorite authors, the ones who are wildly successful. Right. It's virtually non-existent. Like you look at Ryan Holiday, who has done, I think, six books in six years with Penguin. That dude cranks out books like he's a machine. <laughs> and go, go look at Ryan Holiday's Facebook status updates. There might be one a week, if that. Yeah, You know, because I think he understands that there's value to deep work or you look at somebody like Cal Newport, right, who has been a vocal proponent of yeah. this approach. 
Cal is a tenured professor at Georgetown. He's one of the youngest people to ever get tenure. And I, and I know what it takes to take a tenure because my dad's a college professor. Getting tenure is no joke. Like you have to work your yeah. ass off. So in addition to getting tenure at not, you know, some school in the middle of nowhere at Georgetown, which is an yeah. elite school and maintaining a wildly popular blog and publishing multiple books. Yeah. Like that's it's, an it's insane funny. level of <laughs> output, which makes you think, wait a minute. There must be something to what this guy is saying if he's saying that one of the reasons that this is possible for him is because he doesn't use any of these tools. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. And and it's like, yeah, social media fast. Like, it's it's almost like kind of this ongoing topic. I think like you're going to see a mass exodus from social media within the next few years. I think as people, so I, I have a cousin who works at a hedge fund and he gets to luckily see all the finances of this. He says, he's like, you know, the, the amount of money Facebook makes, he's like, this isn't going to go anywhere. I don't entirely buy that because we we we've said that you know about things like MySpace. You know, MySpace was worth a hundred million dollars. And when was the last time you remember somebody using MySpace? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it ever had the sort of permanence in our culture that Facebook has had. But I think that you're going to see the end of some of this at some point because I think people are finally just like, okay. I think the biggest thing we're losing, and I'm kind of glad we got to do this in person. Now I now I get why you want to do it in person. Yeah, is this right? We are in grave danger of this being less and less common. Yeah. That's why you know we're planning a conference, and one of the reasons people are like why plan a conference, and I was like, not because I want to make money, not because of my ego, because I I need human contact. Like I want to be in a yeah. room with the people. You know, it, I I would rather see 400 of my listeners close to me face to face then have a million people download every episode because you know a million people downloading every episode doesn't change the fact that I I don't have anybody to hang out with on a Friday night. Right. Exactly. Know? Yeah, I mean this in person you know in here relationship is like why I love doing it in person exactly. Yeah. So, well, I'm wanting I'm curious. So what were you when you wrote or started got the idea for audience of one what were you going through in your creative journey? That kind of like inspired this book. Well, so Audience of One, in a lot of ways, it was an accidental title. It was an accidental book. So I got a book deal for two books and and I got a book deal because my self-published book, The Art of Being Unmistakable, was, you know, freakishly successful courtesy of Glenn Beck. And so yeah. Penguin bought the rights to that book. And then my oh. editor said, you know what, I want you to do another book. And it was based on this idea of writing a thousand words a day. So originally it was going to be a book for writers, but then we kind of thought that that would be a really narrow market. And that this idea of creating for your own sake and all these creative routines were more relevant to people than, than just writers. We didn't even have a title for the book until the book was finished. Yeah. So for the entire time writing the book, it was called creative practice, like somewhere I think in the midst of it. Somewhere along the way, I think probably about a month before the final manuscript was due, my editor Vivian sent a title over and she said an audience of one. And everyone was like, whoa, yeah, that's a really counterintuitive message for the culture <laughs> that we live in, given that nobody wants an audience of one. Right. And, right, right. Uh, and yet, you know, if you go back and you look throughout history, that was often, you know, what made people successful. So as far as what I was going through, I think that for me, the idea became very apparent very early on that when I made decisions about my creative work based on pleasing myself, that's when I did some of my best work. Mm. So when, you know, we had a conference in 2014 and I didn't plan a conference to sell tickets. Like basically I created the conference that I just always wanted to go to. Right. It was like, I'm bored of sitting in hotel ballrooms. Like this is some bullshit. I want to change this. So yeah. I'm going to change it and I'm going to make the conference that I want to go to. Even when it, when it comes to podcast guests, like I never will choose anybody who's fame. Like I, I will never make a decision about a guest based on how famous or well-known they are, I'll always choose my guest based on how personally interested I am in their story, which is why we have probably one of the most diverse lineup of of podcast guests you'll ever hear on any show. Yeah, They've ranged from bank robbers to drug dealers to performance psychologists <laughs> to, to creatives because, you know, that idea of creative, I mean, creative is such an expansive idea that everybody can fall into that umbrella. So that opens up a world of, of potential guests. But I think that that just, you know, as I saw more and more people constantly, you know, sort of looking at sort of the gurus or the, the you know, cultural icons. And one, one thing that I, I saw over and over, and this was largely the message of my first book, was that people always wanted to be their heroes and role models. Like, they're like, oh, I want to be the next Daniel Laporte. I'm like, why? You should yeah. be the first or the one and only you, not yeah. the next anybody else. That, to me, was just one, I, I, like that's a recipe for failure. Right. Uh, you're not going to stand out by trying to become the next to anybody else. And so that really stuck with me. And then, you know, it, as we started doing the research for the book, just more and more, it became apparent that, wait a minute, this is, 
like common and it's weird yeah. and, and you know part of it might be that whole reticular activating syndrome thing but i feel like i keep hearing the message of audience of one echoed everywhere in culture now from you know musicians from you know athletes from celebrities like i was listening to bradley cooper and oprah talk and he was talking about this very thing yeah about you know a star is born you know and he said you know it had to be about the art he wasn't even thinking about you know winning oscars and all that i think it was uh joseph gordon levitt with tim ferris was yeah. talking about that same thing and i'm like wow i keep hearing this message echoed over and over throughout culture which is great for me because i feel like okay wait a minute this is gonna stick and but what's funny is that despite writing a book about not having any expectations that was the biggest struggle of all with this book yeah um, it took me a long time to let go particularly because we invested a lot of money in a high-end marketing firm to help with the launch and they did a great job and they were very clear with me right from the, the get-go they were like look we can't promise you any numbers you know my, my publisher i think screwed some things up that you know, that's a whole other story but they were they were clear they're like we can't guarantee numbers nobody can and he said if somebody guarantees you numbers for this they're doing something sketchy yeah and so i had to get my head around that and it took me a long time to, to surrender and then when i did that's when a lot of really just sort of unexpected magical things started happening you know i the book ended up literally at the front of a bookstore in india next to Michelle Obama's book in bookstores. In India. Wow. <laughs> so like, you know, I, I go from, cause I, I happened to be there with uh, one of our listeners and, and she and I were hanging out in Delhi and she said, Hey, I, what do you want to do? And I was like, you tell me it's your town. She's like, how about a bookstore tour? I was like, smart girl, you read my mind. <laughs> and so she took me around to bookstores and she said, you know, your books aren't available here. And I said, would it be easy to get them on shelves? She's like, are you kidding? She said, you're Indian. They would love you here. And so I emailed you know, my agent, my editor, and next thing I know, Penguin India is, you know, scrambling to get my books on shelves and they don't just get them on shelves. They get them on wow. prime real estate, you know, and uh, I just I remember looking. I was like, wow, there's my book and there's Michelle Obama's book and like all these others that have sold millions of copies. And so then it just sort of steadily started selling. I think we're close to about 3000 now, which is, you know, most traditionally published books don't even hit a thousand copies is what most people don't know. Really? Yeah. People have this idea that uh, because you have a book deal with a publisher, that that's going to magically like you know catapult you into to to stardom. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is that that's when the work begins. You know, yeah. It's you've worked really hard to get to this point, and then you realize, wait a minute, like now I'm back at zero. You yeah. know, now I have to go in and prove that I deserve <laughs> this opportunity. And and the thing is that this is, you know, kind of takes us that I have metrics. I think that at the end of the day, you have to create stuff that you're proud to put your signature on because you might not get a chance to do this again. I've seen a lot of authors sign early book deals with shitty contracts and, you know, all out of the vanity of wanting to just see their name on a book. And it's kind of like, well, go master your craft first. I'm really glad that it took as long as it did for me to get a book deal because I not only got a book deal with the same publisher that Seth Godin publishes with, I, I wrote a much better book than I would have been capable of writing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. I think patience is is lacking. And most people are like, oh, I want it you know, today. And I, I think that to me, that was a, a blessing in disguise. I had a woman who told me, she said, you're not ready. And this was about three, four years before I got my book deal. Yeah. And I wasn't happy with that she told me that. I was, she was spot on. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I wrote, I did a book in 2010 with mm -hmm. Random House. It was a book on travel photography. Yeah. And I don't think it, I mean, I don't even know. I, I probably maybe sold a thousand. I don't even know. But this was, I mean, this was pre like any sort of platform online yeah. too. So, you know, and you don't realize until you launch a book that the publisher doesn't really do anything no, for you no, no, not at all. <laughs> no. I mean, well, and that's the thing, right? I, I think personally that the most valuable thing any aspiring author can do is to self-publish. I mean, and I think some of the most, you know, Seth Godin will tell you this over and over again. To me, that was what got me my book deal because I think that mm. what self-publishing does, it allows you to prove that there's demand for your work. It, it, it's interesting, right? It's, it's these people come to you when you no longer need them. That's the weirdest thing about it is that, you know, if people are like, oh, I desperately want somebody to give me a chance. But then when you give yourself that chance, like my, my self-published book sold 15,000 copies. And even after, like immediately after I hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, no interest from any publisher. I didn't get editors knocking, nothing like that. Two yeah. years later and two years of writing every day, publishing articles on Medium, an editor at Penguin found something I wrote. Yeah. Um, and it was something I wrote two years before. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like you're just creating this large body of work. And there's Neil Gaiman who said basically what it is, is it's like putting messages in bottles and eventually one comes back <laughs> or washes up on shore and reaches the person it was meant to reach. Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell me about uh, creativity and spirituality, because, uh -huh. you know, I feel like that's, you know, it's a topic with that you talk about a lot. And it's, there was there was you kind of hinted at some of the stuff in the book and 
What is it? What does that look like for you? Well, it's funny because I jokingly say that I'm, I'm a spiritual skeptic, right? I live in a town called Encinitas where I think basically it's <laughs> yeah. full of white people who wish they were Indian. Like they're more Indian than I am. They oh, have yeah. Sanskrit like, tattoos and like they're all vegan. And I'm like, hey, where do you want to go to dinner? I'm like, hey, let's go to a steakhouse. So it's weird to be the yeah. Hindu vegetarian guy. <laughs> the Hindu guy who says, let's go to a steakhouse and you're surrounded by people who are uh, vegetarian. But all, all joking aside, I think that to me, I've, I'd been very, very skeptical about all things spiritual for a long time. Like I dismissed it all as new age bullshit. And then I started to see that, okay, there are forces in our lives that we will never be able to explain or understand. And that's what blind faith really is in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, largely where that's come from is, is being a surfer for me. Mm. Uh, as a surfer, it was one of the things where it became apparent to me that there was something really magical about being immersed in nature. And, and now even as a snowboarder, I find that like my best ideas come from these moments where I'm not really thinking about these ideas and they come from unexpected places. But I, I think that the, if there's any moment in my life and, you know, I, I just wrote a new book called the scenic route, which I'll, I'll you know, tell you a little bit about, but uh, mm. it's going to be self-published. And my sister got married in, in February and the day of the wedding, luckily the weather was fairly nice. It was sunny, but it was on a golf course in Palm Springs but that weekend was far colder than we were expecting it to be. Mm. Uh, so the first night event, they had to move it indoors because my sister was like, everybody's going to leave if we have this thing outside. So luckily the venue accommodated us and helped us move everything indoors. But the ceremony itself, even though it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, the sun was coming down. So it was cold. It was really cold. And then out of nowhere, the wind just started howling. Mm. In an Indian wedding, you have the, this platform called the mandap where the bride and the groom are sitting underneath this thing. And so they, you know, constructed it, this like wooden thing. And then they put, you know, a, like <clears throat> some sort of pallet on, on the ground where my sister and my, my brother-in-law were sitting. And the guy who had constructed the mandap said, look, he said, we didn't accommodate for this kind of wind. Can you, he's like, there's like a 1% chance this thing might fall. But, you know, I said, well, yeah, given it's my sister under that thing, I don't want to take that 1% chance. He's like, can you get, you know, some cousins to go and hold this thing? And what was really surreal is that the moment that the ceremony started, like the priest started, the wind just died down. Wow. And I was kind of like, okay, these are the kinds of moments that make you realize, okay, wait a minute, there are things in our lives that we have no explanation for, we'll never be able to understand. Yeah. And so I think that in that sense, there is a spiritual aspect to creativity where sometimes, you know, your best ideas, you have no idea where they come from. Uh, and so I think that I've become less skeptical and much more open. Uh, when I went, you know, first went to Encinitas, I, I, I met an energy healer and I, I remember meeting her and I asked her when I went into her shop, is it, can you explain to me what these energy healing sessions are about? Or is this all just a bunch of new age bullshit? And luckily she was a, a really kind woman and, and didn't take that offensively. And I, I didn't mean it offensively. I actually said, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. And I said, has anybody asked you that before? She said, not in that way, but let me explain. <laughs> and she gave me this whole explanation of energy. And I was like, okay, I'm buying it. Like, that sounds reasonable. And then, you know, we went back and she said, hey, okay, well, here's my card. If you want to come, come see me. And so a week later, I went back, mainly because I was just really curious. I wanted to know. Uh, yeah. I wanted to see what happened. And I had a, a breakup that made a mess of my head in, in 2014, and it just took me a long time to get over it. And I think this was like 2017. And I was over it. Like, it wasn't hurting anymore, but I was still thinking about it every day. Like, I was like, wait a minute, this happened three years ago. I still think about this every day, even if it's for like a little bit of a second, you know? Yeah. And then I did an energy healing session, and I remember I got to the end of the week. I was like, holy shit. Like, I stopped thinking about it. How does that, yeah. you know, and so in moments like that, I realized, okay, wait a minute, there is a spiritual aspect to creativity and to, to all these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I totally understand what you're saying. It's like, I'm, I've been like a huge skeptic my whole life. And yeah. I'm actually starting to like, take a look at all this stuff. And I don't know, have you ever read uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza? Uh, yeah, I, I know of, yeah. Yeah, his work is amazing. And it, he really comes at it from kind of like a scientific yeah. research perspective of like, oh, here's how energy works, right? Mm -hmm. Here's your body is made of energy. Like your thoughts are setting your frequencies, right? Your energetic yeah. frequency, then your body starts vibrating on that frequency. It's totally. like all energy. And it's like, yeah. but he goes into like, he like hooks people up to brain scanners when they're meditating and like measures their energetic fields with like instruments and things like that. Well, it's so weird, right? So I, I you know, I, I came back from this India trip with a sort of philosophy of, okay, you know what? There are going to be these experiments I'm running as a, a potential, you know, idea for my next book uh, about experiments with success on my own terms. And one of them was about expectations, which mm -hmm. I learned the hard way last year of, okay, what happened? So I started going to dates and to, to every situation with no expectations. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Because I think when you have expectations, the inevitable energy is one of scarcity, because by definition, what you're saying is you don't have this thing that you say that you want. Whereas you have no expectations, 
that energy gets you know neutralized and suddenly you come into the situation where okay if this goes well great if it doesn't no big deal because I didn't have any expectations. So uh, yeah. I don't know if you know who A.R. Rahman is. A.R. Rahman is like one of the most famous composers in the world. Uh, mm, no, he, no. he does all the, like he's <laughs> the most sought after composer for Bollywood movie soundtracks. And I mean, like A.R. Rahman is, is just a brilliant musician. I mean, I don't understand any of the, the <laughs> words in his music and I love it, which that to me speaks volumes about somebody's music. Like he's collaborated with like Usher and, and all sorts of people. Oh, okay. and, he had a, has a documentary on Netflix called Harmony, and, and I remember one thing that he said in that. He said, you know, when you expect nothing, everything comes to you. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of like the whole idea of surrendering yeah. and just letting the universe do yeah. do what it wants and, like, work through you and yeah through you, how, whatever that means to you. You well, know what I mean? Like, we, we like the idea of destiny and, and, you know, so much that the idea that the, there's this divine order of the universe that we have no control over, that is, like enough to drive most people to madness. You know, they're like, okay, I got to control this. I got to make sure this happens when this is supposed to. I think for me, relationships have been the place where I've had to learn that is, okay, you know what? Like the timeline is not what I've wanted it to be. I'm, you know, 41 and single. I'm like, okay, maybe there are things that I can improve about myself here. And at the same time, I'm kind of like, okay, what do I, there's certain parts of this that I have no control over, you know, yeah, that I've got to just be okay with that and see where, where it leads me. And, and I think that's the same for creativity too, right? Because, you really never know when your work is going to strike a chord, when something is going to take off. I think the only thing you, it, when it comes to creative work, the only thing that you control is your effort. Yeah. Yeah. You can only control what you put into it. Right. I mean, with life in general. Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. Think, like what you put out there is what you end up getting back. Exactly. So if yeah. you're putting positive vibes out there, I think you get positive totally. things back into your life. I yeah. mean, it's like yeah. giving, right? Like being generous and giving and like you get back without you know, yeah absolutely but without expectation totally I think when you put that expectation like you're talking about well, you're and like, that's the that's the really funny thing right is that you do this thing without expectation and this is the real challenge because when you do that you start to get what you want and that's when the real challenge begins of okay how do i still have that attitude of expecting nothing even when i'm starting to get all the things that i'm wanting because <laughs> you know how do you not cling to that you know how do you not get attached to that yeah and i, I think i wrote about this the other day i said you know think about it this way like we have uh, everything that we we are attached to, everything that we are, is basically imprisoning us. So imagine that you have everything that you've ever wanted, you know, in your life. But imagine if you were physically attached to a million dollars, where literally you had to carry around the briefcase for a million dollars in your hand every day. It was like handcuffed to you. You have the million dollars, but you're imprisoned by the very thing that you've always wanted. Right. Or you know, the romantic partner like literally joined at the hip, which means you have this person that you've always wanted, and yet you're imprisoned by that very person because of the fact that you're attached to it. Yeah. And so I started to see, I was like, wow, in a very literal sense, being attached to something means you're imprisoned by it. Letting go of something means you're free of it. Right. And so what's the balance, right? Yeah. Exactly. The, the balance between the two. Cause yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like the art of letting go. The art of non-attachment yeah. is really... And that to me is, is the I think, the lesson that we're all here to learn, whether we're doing it as creatives or as human beings. I think that is the lesson. Because the thing is, like you notice when you do that, one, everything that you've ever wanted happens. You're happier. And you gotta, it's so hard to do. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, like you, 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 know, you, you meet somebody who's amazing and things are going so wonderful that you're just like, oh my God, I want this to last forever. I, uh, you know, and, and then you just cling to somebody and you constrict it. And, and yeah. so all of a sudden, like, you know, they're not given the freedom to be, be who they are and you suffocate them unintentionally because you, you want this thing so badly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the same with everything that we do. Yeah. It's this constant, I mean, so much of all this stuff takes awareness, right? Yeah. Just like learning how to step back and become aware of, of, our triggers are, you know, what we're attached to, what we're Absolutely. holding on to, and yeah. the practice of letting go and things like that. Yeah. Do you have any sort of like meditation practices? I do meditate. I've been on and off with it. It's funny, the last few months I've been on and off with it. Prior to that, I get to the point where, you know, I was very consistent with it. And now, you know, I'm going through, uh, I think, I don't remember what her, her last name is. Uh, she's the founder of Ziva Meditation. Oh, yeah, Emily. Emily, yeah. She's a good friend of mine. Yeah, so I've been reading her her new book, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. She's making a convincing case for for getting back into the groove of this. But I did do, you know, I was using the Calm app pretty regularly and, and doing it. And uh, 
I think the, the, the two things that I probably did that were most beneficial to my mental health this year, one was quitting social media for 30 days. And and so I'm, uh, you know, I'm on it right now only because I have a new book, the self-published book coming out. Yeah. Once that book is released, I'm probably going to be, try to go off for 60 to 90 days and see if I can make it through 60 days. So I made it to 30. Now the challenge is, can I get to 60? Wow. And then the next challenge is, can I get to 90? And I want to see if, if, you know, if I get, if 30 days made my life this much better, I wonder what happened if I did 60 and 90, like would I, <laughs> would, I would I end up with a 430? million dollar you know baseball contract probably not but still you know yeah. it's makes me see I, I realize that the, the most valuable thing i do is create and social media was actually taking away from that yeah it's like this whole balance of creating versus consuming yeah and i mean i, I think what's great about social media too is sometimes i mean like there's like so much discovery of yeah. and inspiration that can come from that but i think you also have to like curate what you're taking in well you know I, I talked a little bit about this in the book about this idea of deliberate consumption right and yes. so most people don't have deliberate consumption habits they have reactive consumption habits like they just kind of click through whatever shows up in their newsfeed they're subscribed to like 200 newsletters and 100 podcasts and it's, it's kind of like okay wait wait a minute there's no way you're getting all you can out of you know, any one of those things, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the way I described it was, you know, with focus, you remember when we were kids, like one of the things where you, you're taught is, you know, you put a, a magnifying glass over a piece of paper in the hot sun and you hold it closer and closer, that piece of paper will catch fire. Right. Whereas if you hold it up, nothing happens. And that to me was one of those sort of interesting lessons. And I think that applies to your consumption habits too. Like you're going to get far more value out of consuming less but being deliberate about what you consume because the intensity of, of how you're consuming will change as opposed to shifting your attention constantly from one thing to the next. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Cal Newport talks a lot about yeah. that. And then you also talk about curating your environment as well. Okay, this is massive. You know, I was just showing you that animated short and I think people severely underestimate the impact of environment on everything in their life. Yeah. Uh, they underestimate the impact of it on their behavior, on their self-esteem, and on, you know, how the people in their lives behave. So, you know, basically I learned about this idea from a guy named Jim Bunch who talks about this idea that there are nine environments that make up your life, right? Yeah. So just imagine everything that you see, hear, smell, taste, or touch is an environment. The clothes you wear, the people you surround yourself with, the content that you consume, the food that you eat, the house that you live in, all of it, the car that you drive, mm. every one of those things is an environment. And every one of those environments is either adding to your life or adding energy or draining energy. Right. It's either you fueling your creativity or taking away from it. And every one of those environments is also interconnected. So for example, you know, if you, for example, start to dress better, inevitably your self-image is going to get better. You know, yeah. like I, I remember going, uh, recently I discovered the magic of proper cloth, which is a very expensive hobby. I've realized. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> they make these beautiful custom dress shirts and, you know, I wanted to start dressing better, but I always hated dress shirts and proper cloth makes Oxford shirts that are flannels which are as comfortable as a flannel, but as stylish as a dress shirt. Oh, so it was the most amazing thing ever, but they're custom tailored and they're like 90 bucks. And I showed up at my friend's house and he's like, holy shit, you look dapper as fuck. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, granted, I'm like, I just had a really high paying speaking gig. I was like, that'll do that to you. But at the same time, I also saw that when I would make a point to dress well, I would carry myself differently. Like it fundamentally changed the way I interacted with the world around me. So like, especially if you're somebody who's creative, like me and you work at home, it's easy to sit around it. And, you know, I write in my pajamas when I wake up in the morning or drinking coffee, but if you change that one thing, it starts to show up in every other area of your life. You carry yourself differently. That means immediately it's going to change the way that you interact with other people. Like you're going to show up very differently. So, you know, if I show up on stage wearing this like really nice shirt and brand new jeans, I'm going to show up on that stage. And I'm going to carry myself like, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm amazing. It's funny uh, on the TV show Billions, they had an ad for it on YouTube and, you know, Bobby Axelrod, he's like, and th yeah, I don't think he's, you know, he, he get, he's the one who gets credit for this quote. He said, he's like, you know, dress for the life you want, not with the one you have. <laughs> but, I, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and buy like mansions and Ferraris and stuff. But the thing is that if you design an environment that leads you to who you want to be, as opposed to who you are today, like you yeah. want your environment to be reflective of who you want to become, not who you are today. Yeah. You know, so I have framed prints of all the people I've, of, of people that I've interviewed on, you know, the wall, like some of my favorite podcasts. Yes. Yeah. Because I want those messages there as, as, you know, sort of uh, ongoing inspiration uh, yeah. to remind me. And, and I think that this is, you know, important in every area of your life from, you know, like I said, the clothes you wear to, to the car that you drive, all of it. And I think that people will be shocked by if you go, you know, I mean, Marie Kondo wrote a book about this, you know, life-changing magic of tidying yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. 
And I think if there's any story that would convince anybody of the virtue of the power of your environment. So I read The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and then I was exposed to this idea of environments. And I went, and the first thing I did was I looked at my bookshelf, and and I share this story in audience one. It's like, what here doesn't bring me any joy? And the bulk of it were books about marketing. And because I started out as a blogger and interviewing bloggers about how to grow traffic, I was like, I don't give a shit about any of this anymore. I'm like, this isn't who I am. Yeah. And this is not what my work is about. So I got rid of all those books. And the only books that were left were books published by Penguin on the top shelf. And then two weeks later, I got an email from editor at Penguin asking if I wanted to do a book with them. Oh, and wow. so I think there's something to be said for environment that's, that's very, it's surreal, the power that environment can have. And anybody, it's funny because I'm not saying anything that isn't completely obvious. You know, if you go and get your house cleaned or your car washed, everybody knows the moment you sit in a car after it's washed, you're like, yeah, this feels, good. this feels really good. <laughs> like this feels better. Or, you know, that your house is immaculate. You walk in and you're just like, yeah, this, this place is, is amazing. I think every, you know, back to that idea of energy, right? Environments produce energy. And so does the environment give you the energy that you want? And if not, then it might be time. And that might mean leaving even physically where you live. Yeah. You know, if you hate where you live, it's going to be hard to do your best work. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think to me, environments are the foundation <laughs> on which everything else is built. Like, that's why we did an entire chapter on it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm a big believer in that as well. I mean, I, I, I got to clean out my clean out my office here soon again because <laughs> it's getting getting a little cluttered. But yeah, I mean, everything, even my it's my I painted my office. Like, yeah. you know, everything's kind of how I like it. It's a little stacked up right now, but yeah, you can always find somebody on TaskRabbit or Handy to come in and, and do that for you. That's yeah, what I right. do. I don't, I don't do any of this stuff myself. <laughs> There's people on TaskRabbit that will come in. Oh, they'll clean your house. They'll assemble your furniture. They'll do everything. I don't do any of that anymore because, you know, I, I kind of, my, my joke is I look at, I assess what my time is worth based on what I would get paid for a speaking gig. And I'm like, okay, would I pay somebody to do this to assemble furniture? I'm like, no. And if I can pay somebody 80 bucks, like if I bring in somebody from TaskRabbit to assemble a bookshelf from Ikea, they'll be done in 40 minutes. It'll take me the whole day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, why would I do this? Yeah. Your time is worth way more than that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think people don't value their time nearly like they don't think about time in terms of, OK, what is my time worth and what is this costing me? You know, and so I think when you place a really high dollar value on your time, suddenly you start you stop wasting time on things yeah. that aren't worth your time. Yeah, that's something I've been doing a lot. And like, I, you know, having an assistant, you know, doing things that can that can you can delegate out yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's amazing how many things if most creatives were very honest with themselves a good amount of what they do i realize there are literally three things that i do that are of value and that is to write to speak to audiences and to produce to interview people everything but there's there so many ancillary activities production basically yeah and so much of that should not be done by somebody who you know like your core skill as a photographer is literally taking amazing photos yeah you know tagging and, and doing all this crap that you would you know do like that should be handed off to low level labor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What kind of things as a creative do you outsource and delegate? Well, so and how do you create systems for that? Yeah. Actually, that's yeah. a good well, question. Systems are a really big part of, of what I do because I think that, you know, as somebody who's a super short attention span, which I think is common for creative people, you have to have systems. So I have systems for, for writing. So, you know, writing is largely, you know, I have an editorial calendar where I document everything I have, every idea, everything that's in progress, everything that's going to be published. And I do all of that in Notion, which is like my favorite tool now. It's, it's an all-in-one workspace where it allows you to do distraction-free writing, manage tasks, and a bunch of other stuff. And so bit by bit, I, I, you know, I think part of it, when it comes to, to building systems, I think the thing that you have to be able to do is really, one, understand your own process. Because yeah. what most people try to do is they don't really have a clear understanding of what their process is. And then they try to outsource it and they get pissed off that the person who they've handed it off to doesn't know how to execute it. So the way I always describe it is like effectively think of it as, as creating a user manual for yourself. And so with writing, I write the post. I don't even proofread my stuff anymore. I have a, a VA who goes in, she proofreads it, she sets it up in WordPress, mm -hmm. and then she schedules it to be sent out in MailChimp to our email list. So the only part of it I touch now is the writing. Uh, oh, wow. So I just hand it off to her. You know, same thing with, with the podcast. I do the interview, and then I have an editor who basically, he does all the ad insertions, he does all the edits, he sets it up on WordPress. But the, the crazier thing is uh, a buddy of mine basically has set up a business uh, called Gap Consulting where he uses Airtable to automate processes for people. And so basically everything from booking our podcast guests to notifying them when it's live to having our illustrator uh, upload album covers, all that is fully automated. Like we don't even touch it. I'll show wow. you the back end of that. It's crazy how much he sat down and he showed me what was possible with Airtable. And he said, yeah, why do you think I'm making so much money? And he built it for me. And I was what? just like, this is insane. 
So, you know, that kind of back to our whole AI and automation conversation, so much can be automated. But I think that until you really understand what your systems are, and, and he said that's the biggest problem he has with companies when they come to him. He, that's the first question he asks them is map out your process for me. A lot of people don't have a clue what their process yeah. is because it, it's never been consistent in any way at all. It's kind of sporadic. And I think yeah. having a system, if you want to really increase your volume of your creative output, that's where it begins. It's the found, you know, system is the foundation. So like a thousand words a day is my foundational system that leads to books to blog posts. I mean, we publish, I publish every day, you know, like I, I decided to take the Seth Godin approach. So two big sort of pillar articles every week and then one sort wow. of, you know, mini thought piece every single day. Yeah. Uh, that was one of those things that came from 30 days of no social media. I was like, I'm going to publish every day. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Because I, I realized, you know, Seth Godin gives that advice to so many people. I'm like, well, there's a lot of people who can't do that. I'm like, I'm one of the people who can definitely do that because I know because I write a thousand words every day. I was like, oh, I can totally do that. Yeah. And then, you know, now that I know I'm going to publish something, I'm like, okay. And, and you know what? Is everything good? No. <laughs> you know, like, and that's okay. You know, yeah. Because there's so much. I mean, and you look at Seth Godin's blog posts, you know, seven, eight thousand blog posts. He said that, you know, none of his blog posts have ever gone viral, if you can believe that. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Uh, I would not have thought. But then you look at the results and you're like, well, okay. Well, I, uh, to me, it was kind of a no-brainer. I was like, I can, because of the fact that I was already doing this, I just wasn't publishing it. And often I was just publishing these as, like Facebook status updates. Yeah. I was like, what's the difference? I'm like, I'm just giving Mark Zuckerberg traffic as opposed to me. Right, right, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But what? yeah, the systems are, are, you know, critical. I think really, I mean, it, in my mind, here's what you do to design a system. One, figure out, you know, what do you do consistently? Like w take, you know, one thing that you do and dissect it up into all of its parts, you know, bit by bit. And then figure out, okay, how out of this, you know, out of these things, you know, so for example, let's take that blog post example out of the things in writing a blog post, what do I do here that's actually a value? The writing part, it's not a value for me to schedule it in MailChimp. It's not a value for me to set it up in WordPress and format it and find pictures. Like, right. why am I doing that? You know, yeah. that's not the part that makes it valuable. It's the part, the part that, you know, my assistant can't do is to write the blog post. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So it's, it's figure out the part that makes you, you know, where are you the linchpin in this process and where are you useless in this process? Yeah. And you just kind of create some sort of document that. Yeah. I mean, you can do documents. I, I think the nowadays when you have tools like Loom, which allows you to record videos, that speeds things up rapidly. You know, I, I think creating a video for somebody is so easy that you can say, okay, do this, this and this. And, you know, like even when uh, our previous editor left, our audio editor, I said, hey, you know, you're about to do one last episode. Can you do me a favor? Can you just record how you're going to do it and explain the whole thing to me? And then I just handed it to the next guy and said, OK, this is a, these are the details. So, yeah, I mean, I think the part of it is just, you know, constantly documenting your processes. Got it. And showing it on like screenshots. So. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That. Awesome. So what's next? What's next? Okay, so yeah, I have a new book called The Scenic Route. So you we were talking about the, the Adobe tools and Adobe yeah. Spark is one of those tools that once you kind of see what's possible with it, you're like, okay, this is magic. Like we can make this beautiful, like and I'll show it to you when you get done and you can link it up uh, for, your, for your readers because it's going to be completely free. Awesome. Like I'll have a Kindle version, but I'll also have a free version that's on Adobe oh, Spark, wow. uh, which is a total like experiment in publishing. A publisher would be like, this is the worst experiment ever because you're giving away for free what we want to give away, you know, for a couple bucks. And I'm basically, I'm going to say, look, if you like the free version, the biggest way you can support it is to buy the Kindle version to help us cover the production costs. But other than that, I'm more interested in the idea of spreading than I am in selling books. Mm. And it was just so much fun to write. So basically, and I'm about to be 41 in a week. And the idea behind this book was, okay, you know, maybe you're not a gigantic fuck up who's 10 years behind on your life goals. Maybe you're just taking the scenic route. And it was basically what I've learned from a life that hasn't turned out the way that I thought it would. And I mean, you can't even really call it a book. It's more a series, a collection of essays and, and observations from the last yeah. you know, five, 10 years of my life. And I, and I wrote it, almost all of it in India. And so that's coming out. Wow. Uh, I am working on a proposal for a third book with a publisher called The Intentional Living Project, which is about experiments with success on my own terms. I like it. And then we have uh, a conference that we're planning, although I wouldn't call it a conference because we don't plan conferences. We design experiences. And when we design experiences, they're unlike anything anybody has ever witnessed. Like basically when we did our last conference, somebody that I remember we were showing some behind the scenes stuff and somebody in our Facebook group said, you're going to try to ruin every other conference that we're ever going to go to. I said, fuck yeah. <laughs> like literally that is the standard. I'm like, I want us to set the bar and I want you to compare us to everything else you go to from this point forward. And I know that part of what we do is we yeah. set a standard that's so off the charts in terms of experience that People walk away and they're like, okay. And yeah, and the thing is the lineup of speakers for this is 
off the charts. It's uh, Amber Ray, Sarah yeah. Peck, Philip McKernan, a woman named Sasha Hines, who's a, a performance psychologist from <laughs> UPenn, from the, the Positive Psychology Program, my old business partner, Brian Cohn, a guy named Daniel Levin, who was actually like took Hay House from like a million to a hundred million dollars in sales and wow. was uh, the potential heir to the H&R Block family fortune. And he walked away from that because his uncle and him had a, a dispute in, in values. And then Ishida Gupta is another friend. So really it's going to be called the architects of reality. But the idea behind it is basically to give people the tools to basically rewrite their own reality with this group of people. And it's going to be in Nashville in April of 2020. We were limited to 400 people. Part of why 400 is that you get the the challenge, you know, we, you, you are really small event, like 60, 70 people. You have to charge really high ticket prices to get, otherwise there are no economies of scale. Yeah. And I realized when we did that last time, we inevitably just priced out a lot of our listeners. And I, I wanted to make sure that this was more accessible to people. Like yeah. this wasn't about selling tickets as much as it was. Let's create an experience. And there will be no smartphones or social media allowed uh, at the awesome. event or laptops. Um, in fact, there will probably be no evidence that this ever took place once it's done. Like I'll destroy the website and <laughs> there'll be pictures. Maybe that's about it. Wow. Um, wow. And those photos, you know, will we'll probably, those photos will probably be the only thing anybody ever sees from it. But um, yeah. I, we won't allow social media or phones. We probably won't even allow people to take pictures at the event in the event space, mainly because we'll have a photographer there doing that, but I don't want people taking pictures. I want them present and I want them to have an experience that is unlike anything else. And so that's the, the, those are the, the things that I'm, I'm working on. I love it. I uh, love it. Well, one last question I love to ask everyone is what does the phrase in live inspiration mean to you? I think that to me, to live inspiration is to act on whatever impulses you have to express your creativity or to express whatever it is that you desire to express. And, you know, part of, I think everything that I do is driven by more than anything, a combination of curiosity and this just impulse to do this. Like I have this just pathological need to make things. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. And where can people find you? Uh, Uh, So you can find uh, me at unmistakablecreative.com. The scenic route, you should be able to read by the time this is probably aired uh, at unmistakablecreative.com slash scenic. And then if you want to find out more about the event, just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash reality. Amazing. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode of Neon Radio with Srinivas Rao. I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love it if you could help me out by leaving us a good review over on Apple Podcasts, sharing out the link neonradio.com slash EP156. You can also check out the show notes over there and see anything we, we talked about linked up and all that good stuff. So you know what time it is. It's time to go out and create your life by creating every small moment. And we'll see you next time. Next time.